Hello, it's Fangraphs Audio. I'm Carson Sestouli. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is Kylie McDaniel. That is lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com, Kylie McDaniel. What follows, he discusses the possibilities of uh, forecasting a prospect's batting average and balls in play, in particular maybe by making some observations about his, uh, which is to say that prospect's propensity for hitting infield fly balls. That's one topic of conversation. I also inquire as to Kyle McDaniel's thoughts on Chris Mitchell's piece uh, at the, the Harbaugh Times just before the new year. That is Chris Mitchell, uh, Mitchell's piece on the uh, Cato system that he uses to forecast prospects. A lot of familiar names on the, uh, say, top prospect list produced by that Cato methodology, uh, but some also uh, less familiar names. I asked Kylie McDaniel about those. Also, uh, two lists to review. Uh, since Kylie and I last spoke, uh, he he published both his list for the Met, uh, the Mets and also the Padres. So all this is to follow. Before any of that, there is a musical interlude, uh, which, again, once again, has been provided by Kylie McDaniel. In, the, in this case, I believe it is by recording artist Kendrick Lamar, a brief musical interlude uh, by Kendrick Lamar, and then the conversation that I've just mentioned. It is Fangraphs Audio featuring Kyle McDaniel. Thank you. I was looking today at John McDonald. Do you know John McDonald retired? Uh, yes. So John McDonald, this this is actually interesting. And so he played he played sixteen he played parts of sixteen consecutive seasons, and yet amassed only twenty five hundred plate appearances over the course of his career. So he averaged less. He played ex- sixteen consecutive seasons, but never. But ne- but averaged uh, what what is that like 150 to 200? I say it's un- it's under 200. Yeah, it's under 200. That's that's pretty amazing. That's I think it's uh, it reveals his role. Um, did the heater just start? Yeah, it did. I didn't know if you could hear that. That's an that's an okay. That is a, that is a sound. <laughs> Sorry, wow. I guess that registers. It sounds like there's rain behind you. I think there's something in the vent, so it's it's almost like there's a ball bearing rattling around or something. Okay, well we'll go. It it just sounds like it's raining where you are. Let's just say that. Um, All right, sure. It's pretty clear we haven't podcasted in a while. This is a real choppy start. <laughs> the, um, so John McDonald was an above average shortstop, and another thing he did that was above average was make contact. I think his strikeout rates were generally about like a standard deviation better than league average. Um, and so if you take those two things together, you say this is a promising prospect um, or promising player, right? But if you were to get that profile from a prospect, you'd say there's there's some promise there. However, his uh, batting averages on balls in play, um, I think his life his career mark was 264. Yes, I'm um, now looking at that. That's kind of amazing. It's low. It's not adjusted for park. Uh, and what it what it prompted me to do was to look at because I also looked down at his uh, infield fly balls and. He he hit a lot of them relative to all of his balls in play. He hit a lot of them. And wow, I, you're not kidding. That is really high. Yeah, right. So so I ran some, I read some models, and some people have done some work on this before. But if you have, if you have like a like a really big sample, but even less, like even after just 2,000 plate appearances, I think it's um, it's it, uh, it explains 50 percent infield fly ball rate per ball uh, ball in play explains 50 percent of of BABIP. 
which I think is quite high, and it gets as high as like 75% um, if you have a very large sample, which is which is huge. And I was thinking about this. Not I, st- I started thinking about it less in terms of uh, John McDonald and more in terms of prospects, right? Because you and I, because I, I've mentioned before, if if there was a way a scout could, well, scouts obviously they put a number on the entire hit tool and um, and they have ways of doing that. I think that you've said that probably the way they don't. The way they probably don't tend to think about it is to say, what's his strikeout rate and what's his likely BABIP, and we'll come, you know, we'll combine those to some degree, weighting them, you know, one way or the other, and there's that's his hit tool. That's not generally how they do it. No. Right. In fact, if you ex- even explain to them the 50 you put on a guy implies these two numbers, they would probably take a second to register to agree with you. Right. But um, but I think but I my mean, guess is that you feel comfortable. Recognizing that batting average, which is a huge part of production overall, uh, is is generally a function. Home runs are part of it, but it's generally a function of uh, making contact and, and ball and play average. Yes, because yeah. I was going to say speed, but I guess that that goes to the batter. Yeah. Right, if it wasn't, if it wasn't speed, and it, it it appears though as though knowing what a guy is going to do in terms of infield fly balls uh, per his ball and play, and this is a, at some level it's a proxy for uh, power on contact, maybe, or or authority, or quality of contact, quality yeah. of contact, right? But do you think that if you were to if you were to to study it, or if you were to ask a scout just a question about any given hitter, any hitter he'd seen, a, you know, a decent amount, do you think this player will pop up more, less, or or roughly le- in a league average way? Do you think that they would be able to answer that question? Well, so. Two things come to mind yeah. during your uh, your epic uh, <laughs> John McDonald. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to lay down. Yeah. So one was I don't remember who wrote it. Maybe it was you wrote about Joey Votto's infield fly rate and how uh, he. Sull- is. Well, Sullivan's done that a bunch, I know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's been so the basic idea ch- is he's a really good hitter. That's basically every part of hitting except for I guess speed, which is obviously a very small part of hitting. But as far as it influences Babbitt, I guess it's part of it. Right. He's good at everything. He's like, I don't know, maybe a 70 at least at all of the elements of hitting, and he basically doesn't pop up at all. Right. And John McDonald, uh, is, it's interesting they had that kind of longevity that he was never really an everyday player. Like, he never had more than 350 plate appearances once. It's not like he had, like, a two-year stretch where he was an everyday guy. Right, and it's 16 years, literally 16 consecutive years he made some sort of appearance. Yeah, like, he was basically a regular backup from 2002 to 2012. It was, like, 10 years of being, like, a 45. Yeah. Which is unusual because you would think if a guy comes up and he's never going to be a 50, the run will be an actual 45 and not like a 40 that's the 25th guy on the roster. It's you know, like maybe seven or eight years. Right. And and so the fact that he's like the exception that you know took even longer and had no years where he was a 50, you're going to assume he has very good skills and very poor tools. And I would say if you had to break down infield fly rate, it would be uh, – I would think bat speed has something to do with it. I would think quality of contact, power, uh, but I think the the one skill that we talk about that may map best is bat control, because basically you're trying to say infield fly is a specific kind of just missing it, and the ability to adjust the bat to not just miss it is probably, it's a small, it's not seeing the ball and making contact, because it's making contact. Uh, it's minute differences in the kind of contact, which is probably more bad control. 
And obviously he, you know, McDonald didn't have big power, hit what, 28 career home runs in what would be what, five full seasons worth of at bats. Um, so he wasn't a power guy, so he had to be a contact guy, and he didn't really, <laughs> he wasn't a great hitter either. Right. And so you're thinking, oh, he just sells out for contact and just tries to line drive up the middle. You don't have to have great bat control to be a 45 shortstop that's glove first and doesn't even hit that well. That's probably like almost a double A hitter that just sells out to do something, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you think, well, I could tell you a couple of guys who appear, uh, and these would be guys with more plate appearances, right? But who would appear towards the, 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 the top end of the leaderboard, right? And maybe maybe you can we can think about a type because so one of them so the the first one is Joe Mauer, right? Uh, this is for guys this is guys with five thousand plate appearances over the last like twelve thirteen years, and Joe Mauer is the best of all of them. Um, I guess probably only because Joe, Joey Votto hasn't had that many, um, and Derek Jeter is third, and I think that that I that is probably not shocking. Yeah, those are both, I would say, elite bat control guys. Right. Now, second on the list, um, and probably a player with a much higher BABIP than you would assume given his, not only given his profile, but the fact that he's very, uh, that he receives, he's the, he's the object of a lot of shifts, is Ryan Howard. Ryan Howard has uh, the second fewest uh, infield fly balls per ball in play. Um, That's interesting. I don't think I would have guessed that. No, I don't think I would have guessed it. I mean, another another guy in the top ten. Because I think it would also I would guess guys that hit fly balls in general would probably get more infield flies. Like that's the bad ball side closest to a fly, infield fly. Exactly. Yes, I would I would say that, that, that. Yes, I think that's that's true. That's something that makes sense to me. Um, but like Michael Young, for example, never hit a lot of infield flies. That's not. He's a, yeah. He doesn't strike out a lot of contact guy. That makes sense. Right. Uh, I don't know. Just other like. Good hitter. I mean, Chipper Jones is one of them. Chipper Jones is just one of the great hitters of his generation. Um, so, you know, a lot of these are not shocking. Um, yeah, I guess what I was getting at with the Votto thing is really good hitters with really good hitting tools. Usually if you had, like I've said before, if you're, if you're loose and handsy, you probably have bat speed and you're probably athletic. You can probably run. Like usually if you have one, you have the other. Usually if you're like a 70 or better at, you know, bat control, which traditionally scouts don't grade, but if you asked them, they could. If you're that good at one of those things, you're going to be good at other stuff, which means you're a good hitter, which means you're probably just going to do things well. And if bat control is one of your foremost skills and you're more of a contact line drive type guy, you're probably going to have infield flies less. So I, th- I think it, like you're saying, uh, it, you know, explains half of BABIP. I'm saying the quality of hitter you are would probably explain your infield fly rate also. So I guess then you get into a recursive circle of, well, if you're good, you're good, right? Yeah, right. If, if you're good, you're going to do a good job. And yeah. if you do a good job, that means you're good. It's like the end of a Mark Marin podcast where you just keep saying we good over and over and no one answers it. <laughs> Is it a question or a statement? People love meta podcasting jokes. You're really hitting our stride now. People are people are starting to listen if they made it this far. Oh uh, no, I'm starting it right now. So the okay, good. <laughs> this is what we show. We needed a warm up. Um, the let's see. Uh, okay, so that's good. I guess it's it's something that it, I will ask you. I will ask you with humility. I will ask you to continue thinking about it because you're able to see things that I'm not able to see. So if maybe just if you just keep it in your brain um, for the future. Now, what if I tell you the thing that I can see that you can't see that explains Babbitt is, in fact, that I see dead people? <laughs> um, I think that that is a that is a bigger story 
than your ability to see the thing. <laughs> we shouldn't bury that on a podcast is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I think that if you if you can see dead people, something bigger is happening. That's true. Um, uh, the other thing I was going to say, which we didn't get to, is we obviously talked at length about pop-ups from the perspective of the pitcher a while ago. Oh, right, but, right, right. And that was obviously like a specific kind of pitcher doing a specific kind of thing as a way to make a uh, you know four-seam, up-in-the-zone, fly-ball-type guy this was more the Mike, palatable. The Mike Fires breed. Yeah, the Mike Fires, Koji Uehara, that kind of guy. It's like a specific thing you can do to make a, according to FIP, a, a, you know, a profile that doesn't typically succeed. There's a way to make it succeed, but it sort of has a limited shelf life. And then now we see that from the hitter point of view, it's, uh, I guess what we're saying is it's more influential than people give it credit for, for both pitchers and hitters. Mm-hmm. But for pitchers, it's, you know, you look, you, you know, one crazy skill to last in the big leagues for five more years than you should. And for hitters, it's, you thought he sucked. Well, guess what? Here's the reason why he sucks. And he doesn't know how to fix it. it it's, it, it, I guess it's, it seems to be more of a repeatable skill than people get a credit, credit for. Right. And I believe I mentioned this to Appleman and he said that it wasn't, didn't look like a super repeatable skill according to the numbers they have on fan graphs. Mm-hmm. I know with one of the teams I looked for, they worked for, they said it was. And they had, Ooh. and they said it's different data that they have, I believe based on hit effects, than what Fangraphs and sort of the freely available, I believe BIS sort of, uh, stringer data is, whereas hit effects is obviously more objective. Right. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, so uh, I, th- I think that in general is an interesting thing that isn't getting folded into these formulas, and I think in part because the freely available stuff doesn't tell you you should, and thus if the study based on the freely available data doesn't tell you you should be using it, then you're not going to be using it. I think there's more to it than that, and it's interesting. The I, I don't know if it's the economy or just how it's slightly different, the application to hitters and pitchers as far as projecting them using that number, which may or may not be reliable, we're now finding. <laughs> um, <clears throat> another thing uh, to which I'd like to draw your attention um, – I don't know if you noticed it. I know that I think you've been uh, uh, you've been well. Besides moving, you've also been working uh, deeply on the the Marlins list. Is that right? Yes. Hopefully, yeah. I will finish it tonight after we finish talking. Yeah. The uh, so you you may or may not have noticed that. Uh, well, actually, this would have been right before the new year. A writer uh, he used to write for the community blog. Um, wrote a number of uh, very strong pieces for that, and now writes for the Harbaugh Times. Uh, his name is Chris Mitchell. He wrote a, a piece on a, a sort of uh, projection sh- system slash methodology he's used to attempt to um, project prospects in particular. Um, I saw the article and skimmed it, but haven't had a chance to really well, dive in and see what's going on. It's a lot of fun, and we don't need to, to dive into it deep. But uh, I can tell you some of the conclusions he's reached and uh, what it means, I guess, for certain prospects right now. And one of them is that walk rate below double A uh, is not particularly helpful. Um, that I may, would agree. That may not shock you. This is for hitters. All of it's for hitters. Um, the let's see, what else can we say about it? Um, oh, that well, that um, uh, contact rate or, or avoiding strikeouts is is quite important. Uh, um, at least as, as important as these things can be at the, the lower minors. Um, I would tend to agree with that also. And, and age is highly predictive. And, of course, that's not shocking because the teams have usually chose to play these players uh, at this level because they're already good. So it's probably not shocking to see age folded in, uh, but it is uh, it is predictive. 
yeah, I I would agree with those. Th- and I think the walk rate thing at lower levels also tracks that uh, walk rate is far less useful for college than strikeout rate is for hitters. Because, uh, well, it's been borne out in studies, but the sort of conventional wisdom is uh, if you're the best hitter in a crappy lineup, they'll just pitch around you, and you're so much better than them, why would they try to challenge you? Uh, and especially during the midweek games against inferior competition, whether it's a bad team or a bad pitcher or a bad pitcher on a bad team, they pitch around you and try to pitch to the non-pro guys. You'll get inflated walk totals, where a strikeout rate is not swinging and missing, which when you're facing bad guys and you're still striking out, that tells us a lot. Whereas if you're not, it just means you're that not tells us you may possibly keep doing it. Whereas the walk rate doesn't really tell us anything necessarily. Right, and I think that Dave, Dave Cameron has mentioned that even at the major league level, uh, there's sort of a threshold after which, like a threshold of of true talent, like true hitting talent. Which if you are below that threshold, you should you might be better off not swinging. Uh, like you're you're bringing negative expected value by swinging, right? You just like when you make contact, and I think the, I think we it's the, like buying a lottery ticket. You're losing money. You might technically hit a home run or win the lottery, but you're, you're actually losing. You're losing by playing. Yes, the I think that it was the a Florida comment. lottery. You're losing by playing. <laughs> it's not snappy, is it? We need we need to be like an advertising uh, uh, consultants consultancy. That's a word. We're making that a word. Well, yeah. T- so to do the opposite. Yeah, well, it's. I think it's all part of our plan to convince companies to advertise on this podcast by giving them terrible ad ideas or saying that they're terrible companies. <laughs> That's right. For a lottery, you you play, you lose. <laughs> yeah, it's one of like Rob Schneider's characters from an Adam Sandler movie. Uh-huh. You can do it. You play, you lose. All right, this joke is played out. Go ahead. Yeah, we're done. Uh, so he, uh, so Mitchell, in his post. Uh, provides a list of I don't know the top twenty or thirty or whatever um, with with their uh, uh, with their expected WAR pro- pro- projections through age twenty eight um, and there are a number of names that are not shocking to see Mookie Betts, Jock Peterson, uh, Chris Bryant are they're among the the top three uh, three of the top four Jose Ramirez uh, was never really a top prospect but um, has it certainly appears as though he will become a useful player. Uh, he was pretty good over the second half last year. Yes. Um, and I would say those first three guys also are tippy-top prospects who also happen to be performing very well. Right, right. So they had a combination of, uh, well, really all the things you want, right? I mean, they have skills and tools. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, and the names Mookie and Jock really help also. It's true. They help them play, play better. So there are a lot of players... Uh, let's say the first ten or so are, uh, will be very familiar to anyone who follows the high minors. Um, these are some of the best players in the high minors. And then there is the name Alex Verdugo. Ooh, I know him. Alex Verdugo. He was an 18-year-old this year in the Dodgers system. Yep. Uh, and <clears throat> according to uh, Cato, or I think it's how you pronounce it, uh, even if it's not, that's how I will continue to pronounce it. At 196 at bats in rookie ball, and then 20 at another rookie ball level. Right. So that's not a limited lot. sample size. Limited sample, but he. The point is, he did not strike out a lot. Correct. And in plays, uh, do we know where he plays? Is he a center fielder? Uh, well, I'll let you finish what you're going to say about him. But where he plays is a, the interesting thing about him. Okay. Uh, well, so I I know that I know that. Um, this w- this system, and this is one of its strengths, but then one of its flaws. So 
I, I, there have been studies like this before, but it's, they've been position agnostic. And the nice thing about Cato, Chris Mitchell's system, is that he includes the positions that these players have played, which does not necessarily – it's not necessarily a great indication of the positions they will play. Um, yeah, of course, it's, not it's a, almost like he needs some prospect guy to say what their projected positions are in each scouting report. Like, that would be helpful. <laughs> well, right. Or to – I mean, yeah. Or if you say – if you look at a case like – you know, if you if you look at a guy who's very highly ranked, and then you say, "Well, does he actually play his position?" No. Then you could sort of, uh, you know, mentally deduct a couple wins or something like that. <clears throat> All right. So tell me about Alex Verdugo, though. Uh, he was preferred as a left-handed pitcher by, I I don't know if it's a majority, but many scouts thought he would be drafted in the top 50, 60, 70 picks as a left-handed pitcher. Uh, he was a uh, well, it is still. A lefty that was up to 95, above average, some would call plus breaking ball, workable changeup, at least average command, six foot 200, not a lot of projection, but he's also hitting a lot. So guys thought there'd be more velocity and more stuff coming if he focused on pitching. Uh, and as a hitter, I preferred him as a hitter. I was actually kind of surprised the Dodgers took him as a hitter just because I just kept hearing him as a pitcher and people weren't talking about him as a hitter. And so I projected him as, but I, I ranked him in my pre-draft rankings as both a hitter and pitcher, and it it was. I think I ended up with him like 46th as a hitter and like 63rd as a pitcher. Like it was basically a coin flip. Um, and as a hitter, I thought he was a first-round pick out of the summer going into the spring, and he didn't really have a bad spring. So I think he was a good value uh, where he came. Is uh, average to slightly above power, but he's got a big plus arm, above average runner. You can start him in center field, and then he'll probably end up in right where he'll be probably an above average defender. And he's a really, really good hitter. Like he hit really well in the big events with wood bats against good pitching, hit home runs, was in you know at all the showcases, and one of the few guys that performed everywhere. And you know, like above average bat speed, above average bat control, good sense of the zone enough power to punish a mistake, like, checks all the boxes. And I think if he was a little easier to um, to evaluate, if he was just one or the other and played in, you know, Florida or Texas or Southern California, he's from Arizona. Mm-hmm. If he was in one of those big areas where he's, you know, uh, facing huge competition and was, like, a little more straightforward to evaluate, I, I think he may have been more of a sandwich around late first rounder. Uh, as just sort of a pure bat that you start in center and maybe move to right. Uh, you know, maybe like Andre Ethier, I guess, since he's with the Dodgers, that makes sense. Like that sort of kind of guy. That's kind of what he could turn into if everything goes the right way. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. And he made, uh, he made quite a, as we say, he made quite a bit of contact. And you say that he, he also, uh, is, uh, has promise both in terms of power and also speed. Yeah, it's actually, now that I'm thinking, it's not that different than Rick Ankiel as a fastball, curveball, lefty that can start and an athletic sort of all three positions outfielder. Okay. Oh, that's an interesting player. Yeah, which is why I was surprised he lasted till 62, and I think he got a slot bonus at 62. Uh, I, I wasn't based out west, so I didn't see him a lot. And when I would talk to scouts, it would always be, is he hitter, is he pitcher, not how is he doing the spring. And so I just assumed he would go in the sandwich round, but... Uh, for some reason, he lasted. And there's plenty of guys where they just sort of slipped 20 picks for no reason. They just couldn't find the right team. Since teams can't trade up and down, you know, maybe there's 10 teams in a row that didn't really want him or 10 teams in a row that he was the backup option. They just didn't take him. Now, uh, uh, recent players who have exhibited um, compelling talent both as hitters and pitchers, uh, I could think of Casey Kelly, 
Yeah. Right, who was drafted by the Red Sox and went to, is now in the Padre system. Although he didn't even really get out of rookie ball as a hitter, but has has big tools though. Now, yeah, and 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 I don't know if he was ever a pitching prospect, but of course Sean Doolittle was at one point what a first base corner outfield prospect in the A system. Yeah, he was seen as a two way guy coming out of college. It was understood that he could go either way. Did did he have any breaking pitches? At, he, he, I think he's a. I he, believe he was a limited experience pitcher. Uh, he may not have even started. He may have been a reliever in college mm-hmm. that was sort of a two-pitch guy, but there was enough there to start. He just didn't throw a lot, didn't really focus on it, didn't need to. Yeah, cause so, so he throws he threw his fastball and ha- has consistently thrown his fastball more than 85% of the time. Um, he's he's strange. He, um, so Sean Doolittle's strange because you would assume that a guy who converts to pitching – um, now, of course, he's pitched before. A lot of these players have pitched before. Converts to pitching at age 25, uh, you would say, well, command might be an issue, right? It's just a lack of practice. And yet he had one of the lowest walk rates in all the majors last year. Well, you could also say if he was uh, notably athletic as a hitter, mm-hmm. that's that's sort of the number one skill that translates best to command if yeah, you can okay. only pick one. Uh, okay. Because it's, you know, repeating your delivery, so it makes sense. Uh, no, and I think that is it Mitch Moreland. Mitch, yeah. Wasn't he a possibility? Or is he still a possibility if he doesn't really ever begin hitting? I believe he was. I'm not as well-versed in his amateur past. Okay. And uh, Joey Joey Gallo. No? Yeah. Yes? He, he was more of a guy that just threw really hard than like a pitching prospect per se. But, yeah, I think he hit like 98 in high school, so he was, he was pretty good. Okay. Now, are, are there any other... There's another one that I'm actually about to write about on the Angels list that was a true coin flip guy in high school went in the first round, uh, Caleb Cowart, who has basically failed as much as you can fail as a hitter That's at true. AA. Well, you and I saw him at uh, the Arizona Fall League. And I believe his swing was one of those that you could even watch in BP as a not incredibly schooled scout and be like, oh, that doesn't look good. What, what is he doing? Yeah. well, It, it was this it awkward finish. The swing itself isn't terrible, but... Right, but the ball also, the ball does not, the ball was a little clunky off his bat. A little clunky. Is that a, is that a scouting term? Absolutely not. Yeah, all right, all right. But um, I actually have already made some calls on the Angels list and said, hey, it was kind of going around the fall league that he might convert to pitching because he was like a legit middle of the first round uh, uh, pitcher as like a three above average pitches, you know, good delivery, like checked all the boxes. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, that's where Jose Fernandez went. Like that, if the best case scenario for that kind of guy is that. Although obviously with all this time off, who knows what would actually happen. It's actually typical for a hitter converting to pitcher. They're usually relievers. They usually get Tommy John because they go from not really pitching on a mound at all to throwing as hard as they can every two or three days. Uh-huh. And usually Elbow's not used to it. That happened to Matt Bush, the former number one overall pick when he, Switch to the uh, switch to the mound. I believe he had Tommy John like within six months. And there's a lot of obviously more under the radar guys. Uh, I believe Carlos Marmol, who's a conversion guy, also had one early in his career. But if he didn't, I I could tell you a bunch of under the radar guys that never made the big leagues that just you know went from right field to pitcher and arm blew out within a year. Now, do you think that um, the conversion, the sorts of conversion players, is it is it possible that it's more common among um, Latin American signings because uh, maybe it's harder to to have information on them. Yes, and also because they are signed before they like physically mature. Like it is completely normal 
for a guy to sign for 200 grand in the Dominican, be a 60 runner, and then two years later he comes to America and he's an 80 runner. Because if you're an 80 runner at 16, it is the biggest tip-off that you're not 16 because you literally can't run that fast at that age. Whereas once you get to 18 in America, you typically never get any faster because that's when you're sort of physically mature. It almost never happens. Uh, so when you're in, in a market where that is expected to where guys can have their velocity, like uh, the Mets list I just did, uh, Marcos Molina, they said they signed him. He was throwing in the mid-80s, and it was just you know sort of like, oh, this guy's... Got some feel, got a change up, you know, body's pretty good, arm works, you know, velocity should come. And he's gained like eight to ten miles per hour in like three years. Uh, like that's obviously a good outcome, but that's kind of why they sign him is they know there's a, you know, sign ten of those guys that's going to happen to one of them. And it might be a guy that throws 95 and doesn't get out of double A. It turned out this one was a guy that already knew how to pitch and didn't get hurt and all that. Nice. But because, because you're in that market, you're going to swing and miss a lot on, well, we got all the tools right, he just can't really hit in games, or he sprouted up six inches and now he can't hit, but he's got a great pitcher's body. Like, stuff just changes kind of on a dime. And what you're really buying is we like his makeup, we know how big his parents are, we know what his body looks like, we think we know where this is headed, and there's sort of arm strength and athleticism and bat speed and his hands are quick. Like, you just sort of like the broad indicators. Which I like, I below, like we know we, how big his parents are. That's a funny thing. <laughs> That's a no, because thing. That's the, when you're 16, that's like one of the best indications where the body's going to go. When you're at 18, 19, 20 in America, you can kind of just look at the kid. You don't have to know what his parents look like unless his parents are like six, seven giants. Uh, it's not super difficult to tell. Uh, but, but that, I mean, if you're signing a guy in Latin America for under 500 grand, you're looking at very broad stuff like that. Whereas once you get over a million, you're looking at more specific stuff because presumably he's a kid that matured early if he has the tools to command that kind of bonus. And so you can go a little deeper and look at more specific stuff and, you know, treat him more like a domestic high school guy because he just happened to get to where domestic 18 year olds are earlier in his development path. We were talking about conversions. Were there any more other uh, other notable ones you could remember? Oh, there's a ton. Coin flip. Uh, I mean, but coin flip guys. That, I think that's sort of when they were scouted to be signed. They were coin flip guys. Yeah. Um. Or how about this? Yeah. How do you choose? How do you choose where, which way to send a guy? Well, so this came up uh, when I was doing the Marlins list. Uh, they one of their top scouts told me that they have a sort of policy that they should get one or two conversion guys in every draft class that once you get past the 20th round and we're just sort of throwing names up on the board of, you know, just generic college guy, like, let's go find a catcher that throws really good but can't really hit or a right fielder that you're not sure can hit and just sign him and either let him hit for a little bit if he really wants to hit and sort of let him fail so he knows he can't hit Mm -hmm. and then pitch or just sign him and say, we're going to pitch you. Here's five grand. Let's see what happens. Uh, And that's just like a deliberate thing. And I know it's deliberate. Guys with arms. (laughs) Basically. Yeah, hopefully two of them, yeah. yeah well, no. Uh, uh, they'll take one. They don't really need one. <laughs> yeah. but just, for, just for balancing actions, it's good to have a second one. It's like That's a, true. you know. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, that, that that team, and I'm sure there's other ones, like specifically say, once we get to the area where, you know, all these guys kind of look the same, let's pick a guy that can play two different positions, uh, or two very different positions, obviously. Um, and in Latin America, it's the same thing, like, Oh, this right fielder, he's, you know, kind of loose. He's got a good swing. We're going to sign him as a hitter, but he's got like a plus arm at 16. So we know we got a backup plan. And I know when I was going through my preliminary listing of the Angels list, Caleb Coward, like, has been at AAA three years in a row and can't really hit and his swing looks a little funny. Like, he shouldn't be that high, but I know there's a potential if everything goes perfectly, a number three starter. So I'm, if he's in, he's in the 40 future value group, I'll move him toward the top because he might be a pitcher at the end of this year. 
and just him as a pitcher alone, forgetting his potential as a hitter, uh, would probably be around that spot on the list anyway. So when you have both of those prospects rolled into one guy, you get to be at the top of the 40 list when you should be maybe toward the bottom. Teams uh, seem to have been hesitant to employ an actual two-way player. Uh, Brooks Kieschnick yeah, is Brooks the name Kieschnick you're about to say. Is, right. And then I guess uh, there have been a host. Like, did, did, did Skip Schumacher, hasn't he like made multiple appearances? I think you mean Adam Dunn is the, is the name you're looking for. Well, Adam Dunn, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, he's, yes, of course. He's, it, 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 works, it just seemed like a lot of position players pitching in this past year. Adam Dunn is the Internet's favorite Toby Keith lookalike two-way player. Okay. Who also was supposed to be a quarterback for Texas. <clears throat> uh, but... It, but teams don't, they seem not to, not to do it. Uh, David, no, and wait, for, there was for the same one. reason, I'm actually writing a report right now for the Marlins list for their number two prospect, JT Riamuto. Mm-hmm. Uh, wait, who does, who does he work for? <laughs> who does he's, number two, he's who the does number, number two, two prospect for the Marlins? He's a catcher. Who does he work for? Oh, he's, so, so I'm asking. Who does number two work for? Oh, okay, alright. Uh, sorry, I did like a weird Schwarzenegger. Yeah, it wasn't anyone, yeah. Um, but I, I talked to one of their scouts, and he was saying he was a high school shortstop and quarterback and had never caught in his life. We took him in the third round and said, you're going to catch. And so he got drafted in 2011, and 2011 in the summer is the first time he had caught in his life, or essentially maybe in a bullpen or something. And this past year in 2014, two and a half, three years later, he went from being an okay prospect that didn't really hit and had the tools to catch and kind of the tools to hit, but hadn't quite put it all together. And then in double A this year, he just put it all together. And they were asking him, like, what changed? He's like, oh, I finally had, like, gotten caught up enough on my defense that I could focus on my hitting. And then focusing on both of those, it kind of all came together and it all clicked. And with Austin Hedges on the mark, on the Padres list that I just did, he knows his glove will get him to the big leagues because he's so good that he, like, admits, and every Padres guy admits, he's not really focusing on his hitting. And now that he's at double A and, like, on the verge of the big leagues, now he's paying attention because he realizes, like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, oh for my first 30 in the big leagues if I don't fix something now because I'm already big league ready with my glove. Let me go, you know, put some time into that. Like, even as a catcher, you don't have enough time for years to sort of do all the things at once. So imagine... Uh, a position player at obviously a less demanding position trying to do all this stuff that goes into being a pitcher, which also takes multiple years on its own. Like it, right. you just realize you're going to be sort of half-assing two things. So you have to kind of suck at both things. And the fact that you can do both of them is like your appeal, which is sort of a Brooks Kiesnick thing. I'm not sure he was a rosterable guy in the big leagues at either one of those things, but the fact that he can save your roster spot makes him good enough. Yeah. Well, it would be, there would be a great deal of pleasure for me if teams did both. And I would assume for other, People who enjoy the game, uh, but that it's not apparently the absolute top priority. It's the epitome of uh, a fringy, which yeah. I, I think is one of your favorite words. It is one of my favorite words. Uh, let's talk about the Padres briefly. You did their uh, you did their list. You just mentioned Austin Hedges. I was looking uh, I was looking at the um, largest bonuses in club history recently for the San Diego Padres. <laughs> And it's not like a, is that on a date with your wife or how'd, how'd you end up there? <laughs> well, it, it's it's a, it's a it's a little bit uh, well, it's not an entirely sad list, but the top two names um, worth I mean these guys are worth almost ten million dollars together. But it, Donovan Tate for six million dollars, his name literally didn't come up in I think five calls with Padres people, and I was just like. Throw some names at me, and like nobody <laughs> even thought to bring his name up. And I mentioned his name to the guy with outside the organization. He was like, "Nope, keep going." Like, like wouldn't even entertain the idea. How is that? That's I mean, that's 
that's a big bonus even for today. And now, I mean, it was it's five years ago. Yeah, it's the bonus Tyler Cole just got. So what's the? uh, How did that happen? (laughs) I mean, how did Uh, that happen? Because Matt Bush. No, wait. So wait, Matt Bush was a first overall pick, right? Correct. And he was an under slot guy. Yes. Okay. And that did not. It worked out very poorly in a number of ways. Um, Yes. Yeah. But um, Donovan Tate, though. I, don't, I honestly don't know a lot about Donovan Tate. I was surprised to see that he had re- received such a high – tell us about him. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite a wind-up. Uh, I was working for a team that year. I believe it was with the Yankees that year. So I wasn't sort of on the amateur draft beat. Uh, but his reputation was – I believe it was Lars Tate is his dad. It was his, dad his dad was a football player. So it was you know coming from a – a good background, had money, which sometimes is a good thing and sometimes is a bad thing. Uh, I believe he was a multi-sport guy, if I'm not mistaken, but at the very least had, you know, the the tools of a multi-sport athlete one way or another. Um, but he was seen as a risk to make contact. Like, he swung and missed more than you'd like on sort of the summer showcase circuit in, in the spring and was also seen as... Depending on which scout you talk to, which this is common with high school kids, is it a makeup problem? Is he just confident? Is it, you know, he's the cool guy at school and so he isn't completely focused on baseball, but then if you get him to where it's his job, will he then be focused on it? Is he just, you know, not focused at all? Is he making bad decisions like a Johnny Manziel or like that whole, he was in that whole nexus of it's a question, mm-hmm. which I should say, that question has been applied to a lot of guys like Taylor Guerrero and Kyle Drabeck had those questions in high school and neither one of them seems to have had any problems uh to the specific things that right. were the questions in pro ball. They've had, you know, other problems getting, they both had Tommy John, which I guess they've had problems. Uh So Donovan Tate was in that sort of area makeup wise and then also had the contact issues, um, but clearly had an enormous, it was like plus across the board. Uh, and it sounds like both. And he's only had three. He's only had three home runs uh, professionally as well. Yeah. So he, if I'm remembering this correctly, got in an ATV accident, which sort of falls into that Johnny Manziel, not a great decision making off the field kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then also had contact issues, and I believe had non ATV related injuries as well. And I think it was sort of stuff sort of spiraled on him, and it just kind of never really got together. I I've obviously haven't done a lot of research on what happened because no, it's not showing up on the list, but that's sort of as tas- or, uh, uh, passively following along when that was happening. That seems to be sort of the narrative. Right, and, 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 and injuries have been part of it, it seems like. Yeah, he hasn't had he hasn't even had 200 at-bats in a season, or 200 at-bats at a specific team in any of the seasons he's played. You mentioned, um, I think you mentioned in, in your uh, on your Padres list, you, you, uh, did, did you say this that there is? Well, I know that there has been a glut, or there has been an apparent glut of um, arm troubles among some of their top pitching prospects. Yeah, them specifically. And did I hear? Did you mention? I, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this. That there was a study. Yeah, it was in the article. I didn't tell you. That okay. Okay. Good. All right. All right. There was a study uh, done within the organization internally. Yes. As to attempting to understand if there was maybe something systemic about this. 
Yeah, but essentially that we've been hit harder than anybody else has been hit. It was specifically our top guys. We deal it even more, although I think the bulk of how many they had wasn't necessarily a question, but most teams, they're sort of evenly distributed through the good players and the non-prospects, and they had them distributed through, like, their top five prospects all got it within, like, a year of each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what was explained to me was that's one of those things where, like, the team president and the GM are like, everyone's giving me crap, let's... uh Let's, is there an answer to this? Let's go through and do it, you know, you know, the way a professional, uh, you know, consulting firm would look into it. And they went through everything. It was like, you went through all the pitch counts, all the off-season throwing, all of the innings limits, uh, all of the sort of stretching and, you know, physiological stuff and like every aspect of what a pitcher does, nutrition, uh, you know, training and cardio and all that sort of thing. And there wasn't even, a thing that appeared to be incorrect that was consistent from one pledge to the other, much less the large programs themselves appeared to sort of check out across the board. And I I would say most teams will have a top pitching prospect get a TJ every year or two, and they happen to, if you include Lubke having two, I think they had five in a one-year or two-year period instead of one, maybe two, and I think that's just sort of the tail end of a normal distribution where they just happen to be out of 30 teams. You know, one of them is going to have zero and one of them is going to have four or five. And they happen to be the one that got four or five. And they did the research to make sure they weren't doing something wrong where they were actually not on the normal distribution. They were the team doing it wrong. And it appears they were doing it right and just got hit. Right. Uh, so, the, yeah, that, that's the way they understand it. And I don't think anyone outside the organization has a specific gripe. I know... There were some scouts that were complaining about Lucas Giolito and Max Freed, uh, who Freed was with the Padres, just got traded to the Braves in the Upton deal. They were on the same high school team in, I believe, 2012, uh, and Giolito was probably going to go 1-1 or 2-3. or three. Had TJ during his senior spring at Harvard-Westlake in L.A., and Max Freed had his elbow blowout, I think, in his second year of pro ball. And there were scouts complaining before the draft, before Giolito blew out, that they were throwing year-round, and they thought that the school's throwing program was, you know, too much. Uh, so I guess that could be one thing to point out, but that was only one TJ from one pitcher, because Giolito obviously went to the Nationals, and they both blew out. So maybe there is something to that, but even that is just the sample size of two. So who knows if that was the reason. Uh, also with regard to the Padres, I thought you think you just brought it up. Oh, yeah, it was uh, – well, you didn't necessarily bring it up, but uh, it's a curious – it must have been a curious organization for you um, to be examining because <laughs> the, all the prospects are gone. <laughs> I mean, they still have they, – they, you know, they have Hunter they, – Yeah, they Ren- kept their top three guys. Right, Hunter – what is it? Renfro, Whistler. And Hedges. Hedges Although, I guess Renfro. I had Turner ahead of Hedges and – but yeah, I think all the other guys they traded were below hedges. So I guess right. three of their top four. Well, let's talk to Tur- about Turner in a second. Uh, but but with regard to, I mean, they, they they got rid of a lot of guys. Yeah, they. I believe in the article I said they either ten or eleven guys were would have been on the list yeah. and were taken off the list in four trades over ten days, right before I put the list up. Right. Which, if all ten guys were on there, I believe would have given them like thirty-one or thirty-two prospects, which would have been one of the deepest systems in baseball. And basically, it appears AJ Preller said, "All right, these top three guys are off limits. Everyone else is on is on is you know is in limits, yeah. <laughs> on limits, on limits. And these are the guys I want to trade for. Or pick out who you want. You can take them, and I'll make sure I get a good value. But all these guys are on the table or on limits, as, as they say. Wait, what is that? Uh, you mentioned that a couple of organizations have exhibited that same sort of strategy, and 
recent years. White Sox have been one of them, right? Marlins are one. I'm doing their list right now, and it is, it's probably the worst system right now, especially since the Angels were probably behind them, and then they swapped Andrew Haney, the top prospect in one organization, now became the top prospect in the other organization, which I think may have flipped it. And obviously I haven't done them all, so I don't know if that's how it's going to end up, but right now they have uh, one player, the Marlins have one player that is a 50 plus. They only have five that are 45s, and they only have 19 total on the list, which I believe all three of those may end up being the lowest. Well, you know, I don't know where you would have placed them, and I don't even know if Enrique Hernandez was eligible. I don't actually think I he I believe he was, and mm-hmm. I believe he would have been at the very end of the list. Okay. In terms – I can tell you in terms of projections, both he and Austin Barnes. Uh, oh, yeah. Barnesy was on there. Barn Barnesy. Yeah, Hernandez was just barely eligible. Okay. Um, Barnes, uh, B- Barnes, uh, both those two guys, Zips projects each of them for at least, at least, uh, two wins in, uh, 2015. I mean, given, you know, or the equivalent in a, you know, full season's worth of plate appearances. That's very interesting. It is very interesting because do you know that, uh, D. Gordon, uh, <laughs> yeah. the player, yeah. the player, I mean, either, uh, well, certainly Enrique Hernandez could have played second base, and uh, of course Austin Barnes is an interesting prospect. Austin Barnes can also play second base. He can play second base or catcher. I think he was what roughly splitting his time there between yeah, the two of them. Yeah, and second, third, and catcher. And yeah. I, I don't think he's played the outfield, but he obviously can. I, I, well, you assume he's doing he's doing a good job elsewhere. You can play second base. You can usually stand in left field. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, the, either of those guys are apparently league average, whereas D. Gordon, at least uh, according to Steamer, D. Gordon is a one-win player over 661 plate appearances exactly. It was a curious trade that I made sure not to ask any of the Marlins officials about that I was talking to. Because <laughs> I know they're not probably not consulting Steamer before a trade, so what's the yeah. point in like berating them? Though? Did you know this projection system you've never right. heard of and probably don't care about said this thing? Like, yeah. What do they care about? You know, I would like to uh, – it would be nice to know if Jerry Seinfeld were to interview some of the front office members of the Marlins. With regard how, how, to, would you, how would you do that, Carson? Well, with regard to the trade, I think he would say, what's the deal? <laughs> I think he would say, what's the deal? What's the deal with that trade? I think he would say that, yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess they got free players, right? Because well, here's the weird thing. So Hernandez appears to be this sort of uh, you know champion of the stats, I guess would be a fair way to paint him. Mm-hmm. He was traded by the Astros to the Marlins. Right. Which appears to be running counter to that, that it appears like, oh, the stat-friendly team traded a stat-friendly player to an apparently not stat-friendly team. Although, although wasn't this, didn't they receive an even sort of more, um, what is it, polemical, no, divisive player? Uh, in return, Colin Moran, Colin yeah. Moran right? Which, which is what yeah. I think you've said before, right? A player that they've valued very highly that other teams did not as much. Probably the most divisive, notable prospect in the minor leagues. Mm-hmm. And it's divisive by Astros like almost everything about him and dismiss most negatives as that probably won't matter. And almost every scout outside the organization said, I don't like anything about this guy. Like, it's unbelievable how split it is. Right. Um, but yeah, it was it was a bigger trade that involved a lot of pieces, but they clearly didn't have to include him if they didn't want to. And the fact that the Marlins clearly said, we want this guy included, the Astros are fine with putting him in there, and then the Marlins let him go to another now stat-friendly team, since they're run by Andrew Friedman, you have to assume that is how they should be categorized. 
It's just interesting that the Marlins were the in-between stage there. It makes sense if it was the A's. Like you, that would fit the narrative, but it's interesting that it worked out that way. The uh, the Dodgers have had we don't have to talk about this, like, but the Dodgers now under Friedman and uh, Zaidi Zaidi Zaidi. I believe it is Zaidi. Zaidi, okay. Um, have made. Um, I shouldn't say they've made the, the exact moves you'd you'd think they would make, but the moves that they have made are not surprising. They, and they've and they've made a lot of. Um, They've made big moves, obviously, but they've also made a lot of interesting small moves. I mean, the, the signing of Brett Anderson is very interesting. It's the sort of risk that a team with all of the money can take. Yeah, um, I would say the Haney for Kendrick thing is a clear sign that they know how much money they have because that's the trade that both the A's and Rays would not make. Right. They'd be on the opposite side of that. But then because they have so much money and have to win every year, then that is a trade you consider, which it's not like we didn't think those two guys would be able to adjust what they did. But that sh- clear sh- clearly shows that they're not just taking exactly what they did with Tampa and Oakland and applying it. And they're like, oh, we have a hundred million dollars left over. Let's go sign, you know, five free agents and fill in the holes. Like they're they're looking at it holistically with what you know, right. with what resources they have. You know, at least with regard to Zips, I hadn't checked the steamer projection, but uh, Kendrick Kendrick is um, is well acquitted uh, by Zips. I think it was like three over three and a half wins. Uh, Still the second best Kendrick in Southern California. Second best Kendrick in Southern California. You're, you're probably not going to get this one. Mm-hmm. Kendrick Lamar is a rapper. Oh, I know. Yeah, of course I know Kendrick Lamar, but only because of uh, the the video uh, with um, Andy Samberg and his friends. <laughs> I'm sorry. Wow, white America is really being represented on this podcast. I never think of it as Jewish America. If that's all right. <laughs> Okay? Mazel tov to you, listeners. Um, I tip my yarmulke to you. The okay, we discussed the Padres a bunch. Uh, oh, the Mets. The Mets are also quite interesting. What shall oh, I yeah. ask you? Surprisingly deep system. Them and the Reds are the two biggest. Oh, surprises. oh, wait, no, no, no. I have to ask you another thing. With, uh, so the, my guy for the Padres was Kyle Lloyd. This is a brief question. Kyle Lloyd uh, did a lot of strikeouts last year, and it's not merely based off of command and polish and that sort of thing. He has a splitter as an out pitch. Apparently, apparently an excellent splitter. But I'm curious as to what. I, it seemed to me that um, you do not find many prospects whose out pitch is a splitter, right? Uh, uh, there aren't even that many pitchers who I feel like who throw it. Of course, there are a lot of Japanese pitchers who throw it. A lot, of, you know, like uh, Iwahara and Tanaka throw it. Matt yeah, Carpenter. I'm, Matt Carpenter. I'm probably th- mentioning an average of 40 players per system, and there's like maybe one prospect per system that throws a splitter that's like a notable pitch for them. Oh yeah, okay. So I was just curious about that. Apparently, he throws a really good one. I know that Matt Carpenter is one of the few, you know, stateside ball players who's really adopted it. Um, Matt Carpenter, the third baseman for the Cardinals. That's not at all who I mean. You're exactly right. They kind of look the same. Uh, mm, nope. <laughs> what are you talking about? He's on the Angels. Uh, He's got a giant oh, beard. Matt Shoemaker, right, right. Yeah, I, I knew it. I knew it was Matt plus an old timey profession. <laughs> yeah, I mixed up Shoemaker with Carpenter. Yeah. Wow, that's a weird one. Yeah. Well, you know, one's a shoe. They have. They. You know, we know what their jobs are, at least. Well, I said, there was a joke on Twitter. I believe it was the Suspettus Barbecue Kids that said, uh, "Was Seth Smith's dad a Seth Smith Smith?" <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty funny, that's right? Pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. All right, that's the only thing. So, no, you don't find a lot of splitters. Correct. And actually, one of the interesting things I found from one of the teams I worked for, when we would go through the scouting reports and try to see what we could find, is there was very rarely a splitter that was rated below average. 
Because I guess the idea is it supposedly stresses your arm, and so if you can't throw an average one, you're not going to throw one. And so scouts are almost conditioned now when you see a splitter. It's a little hard to grade because a lot of it's about, like, deception and how the hitter reacts to it, and a lot of guys don't throw it that often. So you just, like, see a splitter, you just automatically put a 50 on it if you don't have a better read, which is kind of funny, and I found myself doing it too. Yeah, and I guess there there are pitchers, right, who's who throw a thing called a split change, and it's a variation on it, I think, though. Well, I think it's, like, sort of a forkball versus splitter. Like, it's split-fingered fastball versus, like, right. yeah, like split-change forkball kind of thing. Right, because I think, like, I think... Uh, Dini's. It's just how deeply you put it in between your fingers. Yeah, well, Michael Waka maybe throws a um, a split change. What is a pitch called a split change? And I think maybe Danny Danny Santana. Do I mean Danny Santana? Salazar. Dan- yeah, Danny Salazar. Danny Santana. How, how old are you? Are you going to go on a home? Set? Danny Santana plays, uh, well, or doesn't really play shortstop for the Twins, I guess. Yes, I was correct. Alfredo Simone does throw a splitter. He threw one when I was in Baltimore with him, and he still does. Okay. Oh, yeah, Simone's actually an interesting, uh, interesting pitcher. He throws very hard and throws strikes. The interesting thing I found about him, when I, I watched him a lot when I was in Baltimore, mm-hmm. is he would throw a a straight four-seam fastball. Mm-hmm. He would throw a two-seam that broke one way, a cutter that broke the other way, and a splitter that broke down. So it was almost like you were playing one of these old-school arcade video games <laughs> where you just push pitch and then push up, down, left, or right. And it was just like it was all hard. It was all 88 to 95, and it just shot one way or the other at the end. Right. So, yeah, RBI baseball. He was RBI baseball. Which I noticed Josh Beckett and Felix Hernandez did the same thing when I was watching them behind the plate, but it was obviously different speeds and different uh, – Amplitudes of break and stuff, but Simone was very simple to figure out. Very consistent, yeah, yeah. Uh, he'll be an interesting pitcher to watch. Um, I think he's a he's a he's a Marlin now, right? Is he Marlin? He he's got a traded. Tiger. He's a Tiger. He's a he Tiger. Traded for Jonathan Crawford. He was traded for Jonathan Crawford. Okay. Uh, okay. Can um, you mumble through the end of every sentence now? Yeah, this is what's happening. The we've been on for a while, I think. The Mets. The Mets. Friggin' A, let's talk about the Mets. Uh, or we could just forget about it. Well, we might just forget about it. But Steven Matz. Yeah. I don't know. His name came up the other day. I was looking at pitchers who throw hard and don't walk people. I should point out, Mets fans, I, every, every time I put up a list, I'll kind of troll around the blogs a couple of days later, just kind of <laughs> see what the general reception is. And for some reason, like the comments were like, oh, that's weird that he has Matt solo, whatever. Like people were just like disregarding the list because I had him lower than they thought, and it, it's a weird idea. Before you get into your questions about Matts, yeah. that people like let's say some other notable publications put out their Mets list before me, and so like the sort of Mets prospect list um, consensus has been formed, and then I put mine out, and it's like, oh, he had Matts too low and Ploiecki too high. It's like is the standard that my list is being graded against the other lists? Like, what if in fact mine is the best list, and you should be retroactively grading their list based off of my list. Or better yet, that there is a a truth somewhere out there that we're all trying to find, and you just read through what my comments are and be like, oh, well, based on his comments and his information, they're put in the right order. Now to figure out whose comments are correct and, you know, what the truth is. Well, you've is. already admitted that you don't know what you're doing. I think you just said that in print. Isn't that right? <laughs> it's, it was one of the first things I wrote, yeah. Yeah, right. So. But it was interesting to me that, like, People would just flippantly ignore all 7,000 words because these two guys, one was three spots too high, one was three spots too low. And the funny part was when I would talk to the Mets people, I was talking to non-Mets people, but I would talk to Mets people and tell them what order I had these guys in because their top of their list is pretty jumbled. 
not one of them told me to move Matt's up, and he was like sixth or seventh every time. Well, now you're just complaining, Kylie. It it was just interesting to me that for some it reason it doesn't sound like you're saying it's. In, it sounds like one of the things you're saying is interesting. I don't know what the other things are you're saying. Is this uh, about anyway. pride? Is so this I'm, pride? I'm just venting. That, and there have been versions of that same problem I've seen with. There was another guy on another list where I said he had a fringy to average arm, and the bloggers on a, multiple different blogs that covered the same team and were talking about my list said, "Oh, he's clearly got a plus arm. This guy's crazy." And I went back and read, and Baseball America said he had a fringy arm for three years in a row. And I'm like, "There's not even a consensus that I'm bucking. I'm just agreeing with everyone, and they think I'm crazy." Well, you are crazy. Yeah. What I'm saying is, bloggers are the worst. You're one of them. Yeah. Well. I guess I am. <laughs> I'm in my I'm in my parents' apartment or my parents' uh, uh, attic right now. Your parents' me. loud attic. <laughs> Your <laughs> loud ass attic. As far as attics go, the vents are pretty loud. Yeah. Uh, well, so what are you saying? You want to talk about Steve Matz? No, we can't. I was saying that. that I'm just saying how we came, he came up the other day, um, independent of your list. And um, wait, so there was somebody not talking about my list? <laughs> Shut your face. The point is that uh, he appears to have these two qualities that are usually good, throwing hard and throwing strikes. Oh, I thought it said he wasn't projectable and recently had Tommy John. <laughs> no, those, are, those seem bad. How recently did he have Tommy John? Is he coming back? Yeah, it was actually like two or three years ago. He had like a complication and then everything got kind of pushed back. I believe it was three years ago. Okay, yeah. Sorry, I was just railing on he all the second round. He second round pick. Second round pick. But uh, do you think that if you were to – how strong do you think the correlation would be between a pitcher's velocity and the and the um, his draft position overall? Uh, pretty strong. Pretty strong. Especially if you're looking backward, based on guys that were draft picks. So you're basically taking out the sort of command and secondary stuff. You're just being like, oh, this guy was drafted high. Do you think he threw hard? It's almost always yes, unless yeah. it's like a finesse college guy that really performed for four years, which is like one out of every 20 pitchers that's taken high. Well, speaking of that, uh, I said that I think Michael Roth was DFA'd recently, released, signed by another team. Michael Roth, was he not sort of the, the, the very, like the apotheosis of a college pitcher? I would have said epitome. Yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, we'll I, say epitome. Context clues tell me they mean the same thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what, is Michael Roth, is he the college pitchingest pitcher of recent, in recent memory? Yeah, he's like little dude, 86 to 90, throws like nine different pitches. And a real bull, he's a bulldog on the mound. Yeah, he really wants it. I'm sure Skip Bayless loves him. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he wasn't a bulldog though, he was a cock, wasn't he? <laughs> well, to me, that one time we wouldn't sign an autograph, I'd say so. <laughs> Uh, he was a, he was a, uh, he was a, what game, are they Gamecocks? Are they Gamecocks? Yes, they are, they are Gamecocks. Mm. They're not BP Cocks, they're, no. they're Gamecocks. The, um, yeah, I guess he's, he has not had as much success at the major league level. But for a time he did, which I think is common for the sort of throws the kitchen sink at you guy, they usually don't last for 10 years. Oh, he, wait, Roth did have some success? I believe he did for like half a season or something. Okay, that's fine. Oh yeah, look at that. You're absolutely right. The ERA did not reveal it. The fielding independent numbers were good. He pitched about 20 innings in relief, uh, in 2013, this past year. Although he, he did not throw a lot of major league innings this past year. Uh, nor did he, I mean, he threw minor league innings, but uh, strikeout walk rates were not that great. And actually, when he did throw in the majors finally, he threw 
roughly four mile per four miles per hour slower than he had previously. So that's not good. It looks like there might be something wrong. That would imply there's a hole in the kitchen sink. Yeah, something might be wrong with his arm. I don't know that for a fact. He did throw a lot of pitches, so that wouldn't be an enormous surprise. Right. What's the What's the state right now? What you mentioned that uh, Georgia. Scouts, yeah, that's that's uh, scouts were not that were not particularly thrilled about maybe the throwing or the usage patterns of the pitchers there at Harvard Westlake. What What's the What's the sort of state of things in terms of uh, pitches being thrown in college now, and certainly you know how how uh, major league clubs think, uh, feel about that, and and then I, I would say something I don't even know anything about would be how the the players themselves feel about it. The players themselves publicly will not say that it's ridiculous because then they're undermining their coach and seeming like a you know like a problem. Yeah. Uh, privately, they'll tell you that they think it's ridiculous. Um, what is it? What, what are average pitch counts now for like a Friday pitcher? Well, I mean, if if we're you know, just taking the guys that throw as long as they can and are getting pulled because of pitch count, it's probably like 110. Okay. But there's plenty of like 130s and 140s. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, there's there's a lot of them. Like, there's probably a couple every Friday if you're looking at just sort of bigger division ones. Really? Yeah. And some guys, like, I think Carlos Rodon threw over 130 like four or five times last year. Really? Right. That's interesting because I don't think... I, I think that 130... It's that's a rare thing for a major leaguer to hit now. Yeah, and I may be wrong with the Rodon thing, but he was definitely over like one fifteen four or five. Like it was definitely like a notable amount enough that right. scouts sat up and paid attention. Uh, a figure which, if you are a club with an opportunity to draft him, you're you're saying no, maybe maybe don't do that, please, please don't do that. Well, and especially uh, because the most of the most notable abuse happens in the postseason when there's so many games strung yeah, together, right? And it will happen after you draft a guy. He'll go to super regionals and you know throw three days in a row in relief, or throw five innings Friday and then throw three on Sunday. Like that happens all the time, and mm-hmm. some guys are never the same. Okay. Uh, there's the guy the A's got, uh, pitcher from, I believe it was Fullerton. I, was, I want to say it was Jason Windsor, who threw a lot of pitches, was like sort of a bulldog, and had some ridiculous usage in like super regionals in Omaha, and was never really the same after that. Like they basically drafted him, and before he got there, he was a different guy. That doesn't seem, seems like a bad deal for the team. <laughs> Well, also for the player, it's like, oh, you might win a College World Series, and then the whole reason you kind of did that to eventually get to Pro Bowl gets completely upended. And if you don't get a ring, it's like, well, you have the memories. You sure don't have a shoulder. Yeah, or any or any chance of um, um, any chance of uh, making money from baseball. I was going to say, it's not like you were getting paid in college, but right. those coaches keep getting more and more money, and you know, college baseball is making more and more as it's you know, getting more exposure and more TV and all that sort of stuff. And so these guys are coaches are more incentivized uh, to do more crazy things with pitch counts, particularly when a guy is going to be drafted or was already drafted and you're in the postseason and this guy's sort of out the door. Like, you're not even worried about if he's going to be healthy for next year because there is no next year. Mm-hmm. You know, much less are you going to win today and get your raise because you went to Super Regionals or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's always been a problem. It's going to keep being a problem. It's never going to be talked about by the coaches or the players, and the way that they talk about it behind closed doors or honestly, but everyone knows it's there. And 
some some enlightened players will try to subtly try to you know not throw 130 pitches every Friday, and some high school players that are committed to a school that has a history of doing that will be more inclined to want to sign uh, because of that when it comes down to sort mm. of a coin flip, do you want to sign or not? Uh, but it is not being considered enough as far as schools disciplining their coaches, uh, players asking out of the game for obvious reasons, and, you know, players not committing to the schools to do this. Because I think it's, I mean, Rice traditionally is the biggest issue because they have, what, like a 15-year history of all their guys blowing out their arms um, and had an, a terribly egregious example this year when Zach Lamont, who probably would have gotten the sandwich round, uh, was hurt for multiple weeks and told his coach, I am hurt, and he kept pitching him, and the kid didn't pull himself out, and then eventually his stuff fell off because he'd been hurt for so long, and then they put him on the shelf. And this is the guy who's had, like, I believe eight to ten Tommy Johns for top three to five round guys that have pitched at his program. Every single one of them have had arm injuries, and there's been eight to ten Tommy Johns of just the elite guys. Uh, and he did that this year. And who was, uh, the, who was the pitcher this year? Sorry? Uh, Zach Lamond, he was just on the Padres list. How do you spell Zeckel? Z- Zech, Z-E-C-H, and then Lamond, like lemon with the D. Oh, I there. see what you're saying. Oh, Zach Lamond. Oh, he, he was on the Padres list. Yes, and he had been a reliever his first two years, so didn't really have the sort of abuse questions, and then went into the rotation, and like a month after he got in the rotation, got the soreness, which is, you know, makes sense given that your usage pattern changed, and then basically got abused, and fell to the third round, and some of the Padres guys were like, yeah, if he didn't, if he never got hurt, he would have gone in the sandwich round. But he did, and because Rice has a stigma, because literally every good pitcher that's come out of there has gotten hurt in pro ball, um, he fell to the third round, and we're like, we're hoping because he was a reliever for so long that maybe he's an exception to the rule. Yeah, right. And and, and that's happened before, right? Uh, teams drafting uh, pitchers who threw out of the bullpen almost exclusively in college uh, with a view to converting them. To, I mean, Dave Bush is an example I remember from a while ago. Cincinnati did it with three pitchers. Uh, they did Nick Howard, who was a third baseman closer in college. Okay. We did it with Michael Lorenzen, who was a right fielder closer in college, and with Raciel Iglesias, who was a closer for the Cuban team. And none of them had started before. I believe Howard had started like on the Cape and had spot started a few times, but... Two of them were position players, good athletes, limited miles on the arm, just sort of came in, sort of like do little, and you know, kind of threw a little bit but didn't necessarily focus on it, and both immediately got better after they signed, and Iglesias sounds like he's bet- better than people were expecting as well. Oh, interesting. Okay. All right. they, they seem to have identified, like, they both sort of stumbled into it that they thought these guys were good investments, but also noticed that the way they value players appears to be uh, athletic relievers with three pitches and solid command, uh, that there is sort of some ability to, especially when they're also hitters and you think there's, you know, oh, when they focus on pitching, then there may be more velo, maybe more aptitude when they focus on it more. Like, they've noticed that they, they think they sort of found something there. Although now that they've done it three times and people know about it, maybe more teams will be willing to follow suit. And, and then uh, this is the last question I'll ask. Uh, is another uh, player like Matt who showed up independently of the list, uh, and it was Matt Bowman. We'll say Bowman for now. Matt or Matthew Bowman, a graduate of Princeton, I believe, or at least a former student of Princeton. I don't know when he left school. Yes, uh, Princeton. Uh, he showed up – I was looking at pitchers – oh, yes, uh, looking at pitchers who had similar minor league numbers to uh, Brandon Webb uh, in terms of not a lot in the way of fastball velocity, 
but a lot of ground balls and um, and what what else? Uh, maybe just a lot of ground balls. That's it. A lot of ground balls, not a lot of velocity, but also not uh, in 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 average strikeout and walk rates. Yeah, he fits that. He's an interesting case. Uh, the Mets identified him as a guy they liked at, in Princeton, who was a shortstop and also starting pitcher, or believe starting pitcher, and was like 88 to 91, kind of fringy stuff, had some moxie, but he was like a good athlete, arm worked, and was a two-way guy, so they thought, you know, maybe there's a little more if he pitches full-time. And they, they told me when I was doing the list, like, we lucked out that he was local, so he came to our workout at City Field because he was nearby, and he was like 92, 95 at the workout. Like, he'd never thrown that hard before, and he did it at our workout, and nobody else saw it. And so we drafted him in the, uh, what was it, 13th round, and converted him to full-time pitching then, and he modeled his delivery after Tim Lincecum. And if you, like, if you look at the video, it looks exactly like Tim Lincecum. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, like a very exaggerated over-the-top sort of delivery, right? Yeah, and he's six foot one sixty five. Like the body's not exactly small, but close. And he now flashes three above average pitches and might have enough command to start. And was you know just sort of like some Ivy League guy that played shortstop and started some and was okay and is like draftable, but whatever. Like sort of your generic thirtieth round pick that'll probably end up being in the front office one day. And now he's going to be in the big leagues next year. And and uh, right, and you mentioned like because I think Lincecum. I mean Lincecum had pedigree, right? I mean he was a yeah. He was, a, he was a guy out of high school. He didn't sign as a sophomore. He wanted a million. I think he got offered like eight fifty right. by the Indians. They regret that. Oh, sp- uh, speaking of um, not accepting money out of high school, we you, you mentioned it, so, it some art, recent article. Karsten Whitson, yeah, was a pitcher. I, I don't know where he came out of high school, but he pitched for Florida, Pan, right? Yeah, Panhandle in Florida high school. Okay, and wasn't he a, like a sixth overall pick or something? Ninth. Ninth, okay, yeah. Ninth overall pick. Didn't didn't take the money. Turned down two points something, depending on who you're talking to. Because why? What I was told was he had a number the Padres thought because uh, of various things that they in, intuited because of his situation that they could get him for less than that number that they never met that number, and that the Whitsons decided, you know, we said we had a number, they took us high because they want us, and they won't meet our number, we're going to go to school, and then three years later, we're going to get more money. And so they never got what they were asking for, depending on who you talk to. If you talk to the team, they might say they met the number, or that they interpreted this was the number, but he said another one. Like, the, the story gets kind of muddled, but that's sounds like it's a version of that. He got to school and blew everyone away as a freshman. It looked like he was going to go 1-1. And then that's when the draft rules changed to where there was more slotting. So you couldn't just get whatever you wanted in a big league deal at 1-1. Mm-hmm. So then his ceiling was sort of lowered. And then as a sophomore, uh, he didn't pitch very much. Had some sort of mysterious arm injury, but it wasn't clear what it was. It wasn't really diagnosed, but something wasn't quite right. But he's and still the, throwing like 90-91. And the schools, the schools are... Uh, have the right to be a little bit more secretive about this, right? Yeah, they wouldn't tell anyone anything. But being in Florida, like, I had some connections to figure out, even if I couldn't report it, kind of be told what was going on. And even the people sort of close to the situation weren't exactly sure what it was. Like, if I'm not mistaken, he went to Andrews a couple times to just sort of see what the deal was. 
<laughs> Jerry Seinfeld was also there to tell him what we <laughs> And it was sort of like, we think it's this. And then I think somewhere around, like, after his sophomore year, it was like, okay, we think we found it. It's this thing is explaining the sort of, you know, dead arm or soreness or whatever it is. And they're like, okay, he's fixed. And then he came back as a junior and through, like, you know, nine. Oh, and then he had, uh, I believe, missed the whole season, redshirted, came back this past year as a redshirt junior. Uh, and was like 99, I saw one of his first starts of the year, it was like 90-93 with sync, flash to 55 slider, you know, the body and delivery, both pretty good, not great, but it's never, it was never a fantastic delivery. And change up with like flash 50, it looked like he could be a back-end starter, but the command kind of came and went, the off-speed stuff was inconsistent, it was mostly fringy. You're like, alright, this guy's like a solid, like, you know, third to sixth rounder, depending on how he goes down the stretch. And then it kind of backed up. He got bumped from the rotation, couldn't throw strikes, delivery backed up. He got a little stiffer. And then it was just like, all right, this guy's just going to go somewhere from the 10th to 20th round and sign for, you know, 50 to 150 grand or something, which is what happened. I believe he went, um, something like the 12th, something like the 12th round for like 100 grand. Yeah. And he's basically like a big guy that can, you know, maybe hit 95. You put him in relief and short stents and will flash you a good breaking ball and could be a middle reliever, but it's like mysterious arm stuff. You know, body got a little stiffer. There's probably some mental uh, stuff that came as a reaction to that stuff happening, which you hear a lot with hitters. Like, oh, the mechanics weren't bad, but then he wasn't hitting. He lost confidence. He might have put on a little weight and gotten a little stiffer. And then because things weren't working out, then he changed his mechanics and started tinkering. And then it became like this whole, you know, circle of things not working out. And that's what happened with him. And everyone assumes he'll never be the same. Uh, and that's just, that's kind of the risk of high school pitching. Yeah. He, um... It, it does appear as though, well, who knows? People have uh, um, varied lives, varied life experiences. It does seem as though all things being equal, it would not have hurt him to to have uh, taken the bonus. Yeah, and the weird thing is, he, as far as I know, he never actually had, like, surgery. I believe it was soreness, shut down, rehab, and then had, like, a... Uh, like a scope, like went in there, cleaned up some stuff, and appeared to fix everything. Like no, it wasn't like a TJ or a shoulder or anything, and the stuff just backed up like a notch, a notch and a half. I saw him before the scope, and the stuff was like eight. It was like flashing sixties, like fifty-five in fall ball before his junior year. Like it looked like it was back, and then by the time the season came around, it was back to that sort of weird, funky, looked awkward stuff, a sort of averageish kind of thing. Mm. So. It's still in there. It could come back, and if you put him in short stents and you know just tell him to do whatever feels right, uh, maybe it comes back. But yeah, it, it doesn't appear he's ever going to be that same guy again. That was two plus pitches and you know blowing dudes away. Yeah, yeah. And, and if he had accepted the the bonus, though, he would have been on this same list of largest signing bonuses in San Diego Padres history that I was looking at before. Yeah. With uh, Matt Bush and Donovan Tate. So yeah, and the guys that were behind that were Jason McLeod and Jed Hoyer, who are now with the Cubs, and appear they, they can do no wrong. <laughs> like I know, like I I was talking to scouting director a couple days ago, and we were talking about some of his players, and he had, if not Hall of Famers, like really good everyday players he had drafted, and then we got to one that was like sort of a bust that everyone knows is a bust, and he was like, yeah, well, can't get them all. Yeah. It was just sort of like, yeah, we all realize even when you're at the very top of the draft, you're going to swing and miss a few times, and. It's just about getting the other ones right and, you know, trying to minimize the damage and, but not be scared off and change your philosophy because you're scared of making a mistake. And you can look at those guys with the Cubs now and be like, yeah, no, they missed on that one. They lucked out that they didn't, you know, pay him and have it sort of on their ledger. But 
you know, and then they took Corey Spangenberg with that comp pick, who's now going to be a big leaguer uh, of some kind. So, you know, they bounced back well, and since then have drafted, you know, really well. So, yeah, well, uh, Ren- for Renfro's pretty strong, looks like, right? Yeah, that, they weren't there for that one. Uh, but oh, it was I see. Same guys. Right. Yeah, they took, uh, you know, Schwarber and Almora and, uh, you know, Volvo. Oh, oh, I was saying, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Okay. So yeah. Cubs, yeah, Cubs, yeah. All right, let's be done. I wish you would have said that at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you, Kylie McDaniel. Thank you, Carson Stewart. It was a real pleasure. Uh, thank you. That is Kylie McDaniel, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.